Welcome to the Men at Work podcast, episode number three. I'm your host, Travis Streb. Today, we're talking to David Frank Gomes. I actually met David through my mother. Uh, For many years, I knew David only as the guy who cuts my mom's hair. Little did I know he is a profound and transformative personal coach. He's got a ton of wisdom. Uh, So David's got an interesting story. He's a rock star hairdresser turned movie producer turned personal coach. His life thus far, as you'll find in the interview, has been focused on serving more life. And he is a true embodiment of all of his teachings. We had a ton of fun in the conversation. We went deep and we talked about a lot, but namely we covered coaching as a way to understand the human condition talked about taking the self out of all the tasks and duties that we do, going deeper with wisdom we already have, bringing our whole selves to work, and mindfulness in all facets of life and even actually in death. We talked about millennials in the workplace, men and the next era of work, and the genderless soul. David also left us with a couple of simple yet deep questions to be asking ourselves as we head off into 2019 or really any time that you listen to this cast for that matter. So this one's full of wisdom for all of you out there. Let's dive in. So David, maybe we could start by giving my audience a bit of background on you because you've you've got such a fascinating story you know looking at your website and talking to my mom who met you many years ago you've got this kind of rock star status as a hairstylist and then you know quickly transitioning into coaching um, and meditation and mindfulness so um, maybe you can walk us through that a bit yeah, I mean, I, I think probably my history is like many people of my age, you know. Um, I, I When I was a young man, I worked surprisingly in the lumber industry, and then we had a major recession, and I was out of a job, a high-paying job. And um, my brother was a hairdresser at the time, and he said, well, why don't you just come and, you know, wash some hair for a few weeks, you know, just to make a bit of extra money. And I thought, yeah, that's cool. You know, meet some girls, wash some hair. It'll be, and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do. And, you know, I ended up sort of sticking around for a couple of years and washed a lot of hair. And um, then I went to get more training in England at Vidal Sassoon. And, you know, I decided to stick it out for a while. Um, So I did become, you know, I don't think I was a rock star hairdresser, but I I did, you know, I I, I did operate at quite a high level with the training I had and the places I worked. Well, you were working at Suki's, which is like, that was the pinnacle of hairdressing in Vancouver. Yeah, it was really interesting, too, because Suki had an international reputation and she used to bring in like the real rock stars of of the industry. I mean, they were very famous and they were rich and... um, so I got a chance to work and meet with like the, you know, in any industry, like the top of the top, the cream of the crop. So that was interesting. But, you know, the most interesting thing was there was a little voice in me that said, you know, this is something you've got to go through. I don't know why, but you're not going to end up here. I just knew that. Um, it was never a passion. I was good at it. It was just wasn't something I wanted to do. But, you know, circumstances allowed it to happen. and you know 
as I've said to many people years later, I realized kind of when you look back, you start to see how the dots connect. And I realized how valuable that skill was, the skill of being able to listen to people. You know, you're connecting in a very personal space. You're working in front of a mirror for 10 hours a day. Who does that? <laughs> right? It's frightening. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you're, you're working on people's bodies. Like you can't start the job and then take off. I mean, it's like from start to finish, you can't leave. And it's a very intimate, you know, space to work in. So I I think it was incredibly valuable as I look back. It's interesting. Like, I think I experienced a version of that working as a bartender in Vancouver for a few years, not the intimacy of the, um, you know, of the body contact and, and hair dressing or hair cutting, but the same thing, you pick up that skill of that universal skill of being able to talk to anybody about pretty much anything um, and trying not to offend too many people at once. Um, and I, I think that's a, it's a really important life skill and one that, I am really grateful for it. Now that I look back on it at the time, it was like, ah, well, you know, what does bartending do? Mixing drinks. And it was like, well, that, that's the easy part. The hard part is talking to all the people that come in and, you know, building rapport and having long-term relationships with the regulars. Um, so I think there's a lot to it. So how did you make that transition? I mean, you said you had this, this, ink, this niggling feeling or this voice that was like, Hey, this isn't going to be the thing you do forever. Um, so what happened after, after Suki's and after hairdressing for you? Yeah, so you know, I was pretty young when I got onto my spiritual path. Um, you know, I was 26, and I, I was pursuing that very intensely. So, so this whole other kind of energy vibe kind of came to me. You know, people were—I I was sort of mentoring people, and um, and it happened a lot through hairdressing. But I, I'd sort of had enough of it, and um, I knew a lot of people, obviously, right? Because you get a, a very large circle of influence. And I knew people in the motion picture industry. So I ended up getting into the film business. You know, I started out in the commercial business. I started out as just a PA, you know, like I didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody other than a few connections that got me a gig. Um, In fact, I remember my first job was for a Chevron commercial. I don't know if you are young, old enough to remember the Chevron commercials with a guy named Miles. He used to be their (laughs) spokesperson, really kind of nice guy. And that was my first commercial was, was Chevron. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so, and I kind of continually transitioned. I did other things and sort of worked in the, the artistic side of it, you know, as a set dresser and a props person and an art director. And, and then I eventually thought, well, the only real fun job is writing and directing, you know, I should do that. So then I sort of made a stab at all that and, uh, it culminated in me making a feature film in, um, I guess it came out in 2006 or something like that. It's ancient history. Um, <laughs> it was based on a true story. You know, we came across a suicide victim and um, in Vancouver, and we ended up going to his wake to find out more about him. Um, my producing partner had called the coroner, and and we wrote a script about it. Well, I wrote a script about it, you know, about these sort of two young guys, brothers in transition who, who went to strangers wakes, you know, to sort of eat and drink and have some fun. Um, so that, that took about a decade to make that independent film happen. And, um, that was a very taxing 
period of my life. There was a tremendous amount of struggle and financial hardship. And, and uh, so that was kind of stage two. Um, and, you know, again, I guess because I'm a philosophical person, I, I look back at these moments and I think like, what, like, why did I, what was that about? Why did I go through that? Um, and, and I, two things came to mind. One is it's, you know, coaching's about the human condition, right? Like a problem isn't coming to you. Um, a, a person is having some kind of an experience. Often there's a lot of trauma in it. And so when you've been through your own traumatic experience, you, you gain the sense of em empathy and compassion and understanding and this willingness to sort of not judge where people are. Um, and so, you know, that experience taught me that because it was such a struggle. And the other thing is filmmaking is about storytelling and in work I do, I'm essentially helping people tell themselves better stories. So, you know, that whole period was, was interesting. And again, I, I turned all that into a company, a production company and did some more work. And, and then I woke up one day and went, you know, that's enough. I don't want to do this anymore. So. So fast forward to now, I mean, you're working, doing a lot of coaching for people, helping them, as you say, tell themselves better stories. I love that, that line. Um, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Seth Godin, you know, the, his marketing mantra around telling better stories. So how yeah. you, know, you, you had the production company, you spent a decade making a movie, which I find astonishing. I thought movies came together in, you know, in the better part of a year, but I guess that's maybe only in Hollywood. Yeah, of course <laughs> they do. Yeah, exactly. When there's lots of money and people know what they're doing. And, <laughs> yeah. Not when it's a guy living in his basement doing it himself. I, I suppose not. Um, yeah. So how did you, so how did you then transition? Like you, did you just start, you mean, you said you were mentoring people at, you know, even at a young age coaching, how did you turn that into a business? Uh, you know, the same way for me that I turn everything into something, you know, I, I, I sat down and a lot of people have said to me, you should be a, you know, psychologist or a psychiatrist. And I thought, no, I don't want to get into that. It doesn't, I couldn't line it up with my kind of worldview. Um, and coaching, personal coaching, and it was just kind of starting to blossom, been around for a long time, but let's face it. I mean, how many people did you know how to coach? Maybe a high powered business executive, you know, the business world, it's pretty ubiquitous, but in the personal world, I mean, I, I didn't know anything about it, but I started doing the research and I thought, actually, this is something I think I would be good at. And it kind of, you know, so I investigated a bunch of different schools and, and I found one that kind of lined up with my worldview, um, you know, and I just thought, okay, I'm a middle-aged guy and I want to do something that's, you know, interesting. I can do it from home. I'm helping people and I'm working one-on-one. -on -one. You know, those are all things I wanted to do. And so I just jumped in, you know, I just jumped in and started doing the work, you know. Um, it just came about kind of organically. Yeah, I think that's the case for a lot of people. I haven't met too many folks that do what you do or, you know, what I do in the coaching space that had that vision at university or, you know, in high school, like, I want to, I want to coach people in their lives. It's just not a thing that people <laughs> really think about.
<laughs> even now I tell people I'm a coach and they're like, Oh, like, do you mean like cycling or I'm like, yeah, no, yeah. no, not, yeah. not that. Kid like, soccer coach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you, but you have a specific focus in your work and you bring this unique lens, you know, you and I talked before about the spiritual side of things. So where did that, I, I guess, where did you pick it up first of all? And then how do you, how do you bring that into your coaching work? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I, I think myself, um, it was something I knew I wanted to do in my coaching, although I was discouraged, you know, from doing it by a lot of people who said, you know, you don't introduce that stuff, but the kind of pure coaching, um, you know, coaching is quite rigid in a sense, um, and it suffers from a uh, a feeling of inadequacy. The coaching community in general, there's a feeling of inadequacy because it, it doesn't feel, that's why they have these organizations that have tried to make it more like a medical model, you know, like get a license, and which is fair enough, right? Um, there's a lot of reasons that you want to work with somebody who knows what they're doing. But coaching's a bit like the Wild West. Like there's some incredibly talented people out there. I mean, people that really have a gift. And I knew I wanted to combine the sort of spiritual elements because it's a universal principle. You know, people want happiness. They want to feel contentment. They want to feel loved. They want to feel their life matters, that they are seen and heard and felt. This is all in the wisdom traditions. It's not, there's no problem that we need to reinvent here. You know, there's no new problem since the time of Buddha, right? Born 500 years before Christ. And then there's another guy born before Buddha, Krishna. You know, so there's, there's all these wisdom traditions. They're ancient teachings. And that they're all kind of pointing us to the same thing. So the coaching handles the external world. It handles all the nuts and bolts stuff, you know, making goals. What is it you want to do? Where do you want to go? You know, the how, what, why, when, where. Um, it's fantastic for that. But the, the, but the inner work, the being work, as I call it, um, that requires a completely different kind of uh, ecosystem, a completely different touch. And so that's something I've been working on for 30 years. So, you know, I, I have a sense that... Um, Everybody's looking for it, regardless of what they think they're looking for, you know. So we mistake it for money or cars, or and those are all great things. You know, you should have them, whatever you need. But um, underneath it, there's a, a spiritual need for those things. And so I felt there was a vacuum there that people wanted to... Uh, is people who didn't want to go to church and weren't religious, but they, they wanted to have these kind of discussions, but they just didn't know who, where to start. That's where I come in. It's yeah. I mean, and I like you, you put it beautifully. I mean, it's like the being versus doing and, you know, coaching tends to be focused around goal setting and accomplishing things and tasks. And, you know, you're, you know, what did you get done this year? It's a good time to reflect, you know, in January, everyone looks back and says, what did I do? And I have found, a similar shift. And, you know, when you and I first spoke, I was really encouraged to hear that there were other people out there that were focusing on the being side. And what I found is clients that I've worked with long-term in particular, so, you know, more than a year, they are far more interested in the being side than the doing. Because they realize, 
I think, and you know, certainly most of us have in our lives, that when you accomplish things, especially for men, we tend to be like, oh, what next? And yeah. you know, there's like immediately there's that empty feeling left behind. Um, and I think that's where the being comes in. It's like, you, did you really focus on your way of being? Sure, it's great to accomplish things. We don't want to leave that out of the picture. But often it's, the, it's how you did it as opposed to what you did. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And, um, you know, uh, I've been thinking a lot about a couple of, a couple of ideas for the New Year's. Um, you know, and one of them is this idea that um, it, when you take the I out of the things you're doing, when you, instead of saying something like, I'm going to knit a sweater for Travis, um, you say something like, how is what I'm doing going to serve life? Well, it's going to tell Travis that I appreciate him and I love him. It's going to keep him warm during the winter. Um, it's going to show that I can use my skills and my, my creative life to actually serve somebody else. Now, we're, we're doing the same thing. We're knitting the sweater. We're just taking the eye out of it, and we're starting to look around and go, how is what I'm doing serving life? Which is a wonderful question, because then occasionally you, come, you, you start to go, well, is what I'm doing serving life in some way? And it actually, you start to realize there's a lot of things I'm doing that actually aren't really serving much. And there are other things I'm doing that are really serving. So, you know, what I'm always trying to point towards with my clients is, is, is these kind of shifts of the way of viewing the world, the way we look at things and to give it meaning and purpose. It's a tiny shift, but it allows you to sort of realize that whether you're a bartender or a hairdresser or a knitter or a CEO of a billion dollar company, what difference does it make? You're either serving life or you're not. That's a really, that's a beautiful point to make and a, a beautiful question to be asking. Uh, I may steal that from my own uh, <laughs> coaching, David. Like, steal how, you know, away. Are steal you, away. How are you serving life in what you're doing? That's a good lens. Um, I'm interested, like, in, you know, this, this podcast is looking really at, you know, a lot more around gender issues. Uh, you know, you spent a lot of time working in the film industry, uh, and I'm I'm interested. Uh, did you see any, you know, any patterns around you know masculine leadership in the film industry? I mean, it tends to be highly masculine in terms of being highly structured and directed, but also it's a creative process. Um, is there anything you can share? Any insights you can share around you know working alongside great and maybe not so great uh, male leaders in the film industry? Yeah. Um, well, I worked in the commercial industry first. So, you know, that's where I had the most experience because when I was sort of doing my own stuff, that was very independent. So it was a completely different universe. Um, but it's a very, it's a hierarchy and it runs like a military operation, right? You've got 50, 60, 70 people. You've got a fixed set of time you have a tremendous amount of equipment when I was doing it because we were using real film and so it was a lot like a military campaign and um, you know there's this saying that like success doesn't make you uh, better or worse it simply amplifies what already exists so some guys were amazing 
they were fantastic. Other guys were, they were monsters. I mean, there were some people I just hated working with. They were awful. Um, but I didn't see a lot of gender stuff. There's just as many awful women doing it too in positions of power because there was the sense that it was allowed. Um, it's one of the reasons I got out of it. I found it a toxic environment. You know, there's a lot of drugs, a lot of, lot of alcoholism, a lot of 16-hour days. I mean, it was just, it wasn't sustainable. It wasn't kind. And it wasn't serving life, you know? Like, uh, I, I can remember when I got out of it, you know, I was doing a Barbie commercial. And there was some, like, 200-pound, corpulent, overpaid, making, like, I don't know, $12,000 a day smoking a cigar, doing a commercial for Barbie. And I thought, I, the world does not need me here. We don't need more plastic toys and high-priced, you know, that, you know, it was kind of nonsensical. That's when I got out. Although I did, did get some lots of Barbie dolls for my niece. So she was happy about that. So there's a, there's a silver lining. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I don't want to judge the industry cause that that's not fair either. I mean, it provided lots of income for people and did lots of things and you know, people have to sell things, but you know, I didn't want to live in an ecosystem we were, where we were selling a lot of things that to be honest, people don't need. Um, so ma modern materialism is is the cancer of our age, right? It's endless growth. And so I think we're in a new phase where it's about going deeper, not wider. Like we don't need more stuff. We need to use the stuff we have and go deeper into it. And David Kane, who does an amazing blog called Raptitude, um, it's, it's his idea. He discusses it. And um, I think it's a wonderful context for the new year. I'm not interested in resolutions and to-do lists, you know, they don't work. What's interesting is intentions and these kind of notions, these experiments that we decide to do on ourselves. That's what I'm interested in. And one of them is like, do you need to read another 25 self-help books? I have a very small library, you know. I only keep the books that are like, the most impactful for me. And I actually don't ever need to read another book. I just need to go back and continually read those books and continually deepen and integrate my practice. I decided last year, I'm like, I'm not reading any business books this year. Yeah. I'm reading one book from my teacher or one of my teachers, David Data. It's an old book called The Way of the Superior Man. Um, it sounds like a misogynist handbook, but it's, it's actually not. Um, <laughs> And it's got 52 chapters and I'm doing a chapter a week and I'm trying to embody the teaching every single week from that book. So it's like, that's that, that's it. That's it yeah. for the year. I don't want to yeah. take, you know, beyond this podcast. I'm not, I don't want to sit down and read, you know, good to great volume nine. Yeah. 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 Reco <laughs> reconstituted. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're right. Like, you know, it's, there's very little you need to actually go into a teaching, right. And to actually, become it you know i mean i i've been reading the Tao Te ching for years and i tell that to my clients i'm like you know if you want to if, if you want a teaching that doesn't require you know because people are like how do how do i learn to meditate and i'm like well it depends i mean like i can give you a million books on meditation that are secular and they have no teaching no lineage nothing but if you really want to learn meditation you you need a lineage like you've got to it's got to be part of something bigger but the Tao Te Ching is one of those very unique things that it, it has its own lineage. But you could just read that book every day for the rest of your life. And I believe you would be a different person. And, and you never have to read another book. Yeah. In my, in, my, in my mind. 
So, you know, that's another notion I think is important. We got off track on your question, but um, no, I, I noticed that the gender played no part in the power structures of the film industry. They were good, good and bad people on both sides of the equation. Yeah, well, I think what you said is, you know, the culture allowed for it. Um, it was acceptable. And I think that's the piece that today when we look at leadership and where toxic masculinity might come to play, it's like the culture allows for it because nobody speaks up. Everyone, no one, no one actually wants to work or very few people want to work in those environments, but everyone thinks everyone else does. So they don't want to say anything. Um, but, you know, that I think I, I do want to pick up on what you're saying, though, about, you know, the, about wisdom. And, and the, you know, the difference between wisdom and smarts, because there are, I don't know how many hundreds of new business books coming out every day or every month. And I'm, I'm completely aligned with you. Like last year I decided, I'm like, I'm not going to read any business books. And I had, you know, I had read, not, I shouldn't say read them all, but in essence, I had read, you know, hundreds of them and tried to, you know, take on, take on board every single thing in each book. And it's like, it's a futile task. And as you say, there's not always a lot of new stuff. Like there's not a lot of novel ideas coming. They're just a repackaging of something that was likely written, you know, several hundred or even thousand years ago. Yeah. You know, there, there's, uh, we could say that knowledge is important, but knowledge isn't wisdom. Knowledge, we could say, is the pumping in of information, right? It's like, read this, do this, study that. Yeah, it's great. It's important. If you want to be a brain surgeon, you got to pump the information in. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a time and a place for that. But it's this, this notion that somehow it's never enough. So um, the truth is most people don't practice. They simply consume. They don't integrate. They don't practice. They don't deepen. So you can read a thousand books on meditation. You can read a thousand books on mindfulness. Who, who gives a shit? That's meaningless. You know, once, once you've learned the basic premise of mindfulness, you, you, you're kind of stuck. I mean, like there's, so you're like, ah, this is a bit boring. Well, maybe I'll go read another book. It's kind of like going to a smorgasbord. When I was a kid, my, my parents used to take me to a place called Frank Baker's and you could have the all you can eat smorgasbord. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. All the, the, jello, I went to was all the, the pop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And at, at the end you get indigestion. So, you know, in the wisdom traditions, it's like find something that satisfies your heart and then dig into it. See if it works. And all wisdom teachers say that. So I think it's the same with leadership, right? When you see toxic cultures, when you see toxic leadership, you ask yourself, what's going on? And at the root, which is what I'm interested in, principles, is you've got somebody somewhere who thinks this is the best way to do something. So the robber thinks robbing will create happiness. The drug addict thinks more drugs will make me happy. The workaholic thinks I'll work harder. So within all these toxic cultures, you're just seeing people that are, they're doing what they know if they knew to do better, if they could do better, if they had better teachers, they'd probably do better. So I just get very curious when I see that, but we are really moving into a new era. It's quite obvious. Like the old paradigm is, it's, it's quickly collapsing. It's not working anymore. And people are not putting up with it.
So it's an exciting time to be in the leadership. Game. So what, what, what are you seeing specifically around that that tells you that? Mm. It tells you that we're in a new paradigm. Uh, you know, I, I can't say anything particular. Um, some of the books I've read in the last decade, the conversations I've been having with people who are, you know, in C-suites, um, uh, it's an evolutionary process. Um, the digital age has created access uh, to a tremendous amount of new ideas. Um, uh, I think a lot of women are sort of spearheading it too, you know, a lot of interesting women that I've been working with and meeting who are really um, kind of in positions of authority and leadership who are pushing some of these things. Um, you know, but I, I, I just have a sense that it's, I, I can sort of feel it and see it, but I don't, there's not one sort of piece that went, oh, okay, yeah, the, the dominoes are falling. Um, I mean, if you wake up and look around and start to practice awareness, you see it's going on everywhere. Yeah, I, I've, I agree with you on that point. And I, I struggle as well to figure out what's the thing, what's the evidence as opposed to the feeling that I have that it is, we, we are, you know, amidst a pretty significant shift. I, I think especially organizationally, but also culturally, that's where I do most of my work. Um, so, what, well, I'm interested, like you said, you're working with some really, some really powerful women out there that are doing some cool stuff. What, what kinds of things are you seeing out there? What, what are they working on? Well, you know, I, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of talk around um, uh, creating cultures where people can um, share ideas, you know, so where they come together, share ideas, trade war stories. And this, this ability to want to bring more of themselves to the workplace, right? I, I guess that, it, again, it's, it, it's, a, it's difficult for me to sort of turn it into a bunch of bullet points, but it's this, this, this sense of, you know, we're not bringing our whole selves to work. And we've kind of created this notion that you sort of put your real self on a shelf when you come to work, put on your mask and do, do all this sort of worky work stuff. Um, and I think, you know, after I read Frederick Laloux's book about reinventing organizations, I, I thought, yeah, like this 90,000 hours is a long time to spend, you know, as I call it at a meditation retreat. That's how long most of us are going to work. And so if we can't bring our whole selves to that, then, then, we can't, in essence, create a life of fulfillment, of significance, because we're basically saying, well, I have to leave myself when I go to work. And I think that, that women are much more in touch with these things, and they're much more interested in, you know, let's face it, we've had a lot of old white men running the show for a long time, and, you know, we're seeing that ecosystem. And so... Um, you know, I'm soon to be an old white man, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing against that, but I'm saying I, I think we need to create this, this more humane way of looking at, at the things we do and why we do them because, you know, life isn't about commerce. It's a small piece of the pie, you know, and... Yeah, I, I think, you, I think you, you hit it on the head as far as you know, where, where I'm at as well and what I'm seeing around that lack of humanity in a lot of organizations just isn't being tolerated. 
And I agree with you. Like, I think women are much more equipped to, uh, or not equipped. They're much, they're much more sensitive to actually wanting to bring their whole self to work. I think, you know, a lot of men have been conditioned already to put on the, the kind of man mask as it were. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think, and because most organizations are a construct of masculinity, there's a lot to, to try to undo. So to, to build these cultures like Frederick Lelou's talking about and reinventing organizations and having a place where people can show up for 90,000 hours as themselves, uh, what are some of the things that, that you think are needed to get there? Well, one of the things, you know, I don't think there's a checklist, but I think there's some, you know, a uni- there's universal principles, I think, which are um, important. I think some of the organizations he's talking about, they're much less ego driven. You know, they're, they're much more based on the, uh, the intelligence of the collective. There's a, a dampening of hierarchy. Um, but let's face it, like you've got to do the work on yourself. I, I'm, I'm not saying that men are not capable of being enlightened leaders. I believe they are. I believe, you know, I, I work with a lot more men now. and Men are, it's an interesting time to be a man, but men are, they're wanting to develop this quality of being. So it's, it's not hidden from men. It, it actually, in my deepest feeling, it's not a gender issue. It's an issue of training yourself. You have to work and train yourself. Um, mindfulness is a training process. It's a practice process. It's not a magical, it's not a lifestyle. It's not a magical one, two, three process. It's working with what is. So, you know, the dampening of the hierarchies, the intelligence of the collective, the reduction of ego, these are all things that are leading to this new kind of paradigm and working on yourself. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, my, my wife works with women around mindfulness, meditation, you know, fitness, and nutrition on the lifestyle side. And, you know, certainly I think that, I think you're right. That's not a gender issue per se. I think that there are a lot more women who are willing to dig in on the work on themselves um, than there are men at this point, but, or the, and that may just be, you know, my own experiences, but, I'm curious, like when you talk about mindfulness and you talk about working with C-suite executives, how do you bring that conversation to them? And what does mindfulness look like if you're, a, you know, working as a, as a corporate exec? Um, well, it, uh, I do a lot of mindfulness sort of exercises that, that, that we would be working on, but it's very ordinary in its context. So, you know, how I work is a real situation comes up. It often happens when we're not talking. And so in the next session, they're like, this happened. And so we go through that process and then I just infuse the mindfulness kind of philosophy within that process. Mindfulness is the most ordinary of things. There's nothing extraordinary about it. You know, it's about how we practice in the moment. It's about what we do with what we have. It's about our reactions, our ability to not add or take away in any given moment. So it's incredibly practical. There's no sort of magic pot I stir and do incantations. It's, it's very practical. And so we work um, from 
that kind of place of practicality. So I, I don't turn mindfulness, it's, I don't turn it into anything. And I allow them the opportunity, you know, often to do a redo, if you could do a redo. And in mindfulness, we're, not, we're looking at our reaction to events too, so which is as important as the event itself. So um, it's a really difficult question to answer, unfortunately, because I, I don't sort of, I don't teach it and practice it in, in sort of a course-like way. But, well, right, and you're, so you're teaching it and practicing it in a practical way. So you're actually getting people to do it and embody it. And I think that, to me, is one of the biggest missing pieces in self-development. Is there, as you said, there's a lot of literature out there, but not a lot of practice going on. And I, you know, I, I might call that embodiment. And I, I see that time and time again, especially again, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll bring this back to gender again, but I find men are, are much better at intellectualizing a concept without actually doing anything about it. So they become experts in a topic like leadership or even mindfulness without actually walking the walk. Um, and I, I think the embodiment part or the practical part is that's the hard work because conceptually meditation can make a lot of sense, especially if you get into the, you know, brain science and new research coming out with fMRIs so you can make sense of it. But can you actually do it? I think is the harder part. Yeah. And I, I think, um, well, I, I, you know, what I've noticed is that at least in personal development work, um, women seem to enjoy it more. They seem to get a lot more joy out of the process. Like for me, the process is quite joyful. Like it's quite uh, invigorating, stimulating, exciting, you know. Um, men seem to often think of it more as problem solving or I've got this problem, how do I solve it? Um, well, and that's, so, that's the male condition right there is like yeah, <laughs> problem yeah. solving, which is why yeah. it's difficult to be a coach when you're always trying to solve somebody's problem instead of just listening to them. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it's why people can't go to their friends and their family and various other sort of people in their intimate ecosystem, because if you have a problem, it's just people just want to solve it so they can get the old you back. <laughs> Um, whereas the old you isn't as interesting to me as, you know, who, who, who are you really? Um, and so mindfulness is interesting because when you dig deep into the process of awareness and acceptance, the practice becomes obvious. And then once we discover what the practice is, because in, in, in my teachings that I work with, you can practice anything. So eventually at the end of every real deep kind of compass conversation, there comes this moment where you go, what would you like to practice? Like if you could have a redo, what would you have practiced? Would you have practiced? Maybe you want to practice being tough right now. That's your next thing. You're a, you don't have any sense of boundaries or maybe you want to practice compassion. We could, we could, and then we could do that. Or maybe you want to practice deep listening. Um, so the conversations inevitably lead to the choice. What do you want to practice? Once we know what we want to practice, then we apply the various techniques or whatever is available to practice with. And then I might suggest, oh, well, I can give you this mindfulness practice to work on. Um, so... I think it's a key in life, especially in leadership, you know, because we have these, um, 
these labels, these sort of overarching labels, but what do they mean? What do they point at? And the truth is leadership is, is multifaceted. You may be leading from the front often, and most of us know what that looks like, but you know, do we know what leading from the back looks like? You know, do we know what leading from the side feels like? And most importantly, as an enlightened leader, I would say, do we know what leading from the center looks like? Leading from within ourselves. Our deepest principles, our aims and ideals, our highest level values. Do we know what that's like? Um, so I think leadership is like, uh, it's like becoming enlightened. It's, it's a lifelong practice. It's not a course. Mindfulness is not a course, right? All I can tell you is you're going to have a chance to practice mindfulness in your life. Everybody is. Everybody's in the lineup and we know where we're heading. We just don't know when we're getting off. So there's no time like the present to practice, you know, and I think great leaders tend to be very mindful people because they're, they have a sensitive awareness of what is going on around them and the ability to rally people. And do we, do we need that now? Yes, we, we need people are, they're dying for good ideas. They're craving somewhere interesting to go, something interesting to do. You know, raping and pillaging, we, we've seen it all. The world is being pillaged, you know, and frankly, I don't, I'm not interested in that. I don't want more of that. Yeah, and I think you're right. A lot of people don't either. Like they're looking around going, do I, and, and they're making choices, which I think is interesting. And, you know, whether they're entrepreneurs or employees or, or what have you, people are making, they're choosing where they want to spend their time as opposed to feeling forced into it. I've talked to, so many people who are, uh, you know, senior leaders and they're like, they just love to hate on the millennial generation. Yeah. Like, oh, well, they, you know, they'll walk across the street for anything. I'm like, well, yeah. Like one of my teachers talks about it. He's like, they're, they're like hippies, but they've got a lot of follow through like the hippie generation. So they believe a lot of the same things, but they're actually willing to walk the walk. Um, and so if you are a company, you don't even need to be raping and pillaging. If you're just an uninteresting, uninspiring leader, be ready for people to walk away uh, because they will. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, millennials, whatever, whatever it is, like when you don't understand something, you tend to be afraid of it or you vilify it. These are the two, these are the two sides. And so the problem is we don't understand this new generation because they're not willing to play by the same set of tired rules the old generation played by and they didn't want to play by the other so what's new here as you said yeah the story's played out several times in history if not hundreds and thousands of times yeah you know i guess when when i was playing music my parents thought it was awful just as i'm sure i i think some of the music i listen to my nieces listening to or i think is awful there's not anything different. It's this, this notion of not understanding, of not having this receptivity to go. It's a new time. It's a new world. And these young people are, they're inhabiting a new world. And why should they have the same rules as us? If they can reinvent it and make it, you know, kinder, safer, cleaner, more beautiful, that's their job, you know? I look at the last 20 years and I think 
in spite of all the innovation you and I talking here, I mean, we've done a tremendous amount of damage and we're leaving it to these people. I, I won't be around for it. So um, I, I say hats off to the millennials. I, I'm, I think they're an interesting group of people. I mean, I don't, I don't work with millennials for the most part. So, I, you know, I don't have a lot of experience, but I, I like what, they, what they're pointing to. Yeah, there's a different flavor to it, which is really, really great. Um, so when you, when you look at, you know, work on self as being a priority for organizations, what, and, and, maybe, and maybe it links in with mindfulness, but what do you think that starts with? If you're, if you're someone out there who's like, where do I start with the work on self? Where does that take you? Well, I think it goes back to that first question I was talking about a while back is, you know, you, 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 you're, you're born into this mystery and then you're, you're going to leave this mystery. If you're a lucky person, you'll have 85, maybe 90 years if you're lucky. Right. So, um, so there's this gap in between, but you're a baby and you got to grow up and you're a teenager. And so we can say the gap is actually quite small for a lot of people, right? They don't even get started till their late twenties. So, you know, the first question I ask people is like, as soon as they're able, like, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to be remembered for? What's your teaching? Everyone has a teaching. What do you want to serve out there? Some people want to serve themselves. That's fine. Right. Everyone's got a different thing. But in organizations, I'm continually asking leaders these questions like, what do you want to serve? Like, aside from the nuts and bolts of you have to grow your business. And after we've taken care of all of that, it's like, what, what do you want this year to be about? Like, what would you like to achieve? What would be something exciting that at the end of your life, you could say, well, I helped create equality for women in the workplace, or I, I developed this program that would allow, you know, I'm reading some stuff about people working with prison, prisoners in prison. So uh, the kind of things that could make you on your deathbed go, well, you know, I think the world is a slightly better place because I'm in it. And that requires a, a, a something bigger than self, something bigger than your job. You're identifying with, you know, your gender and all, all this, your economic situation, like that's all a part of it but it's something bigger than you. It's like this, this mysterious notion of what will I do to improve this world? I'm not required to fix it, but by the time I've left, I'd, I'd like somebody to say the world was a better place because he was in it or she was in it or they were in it. And so I, I just continually remind people of that notion because we, we forget because we have our head down and then it's, especially in a data-driven world, right? We're, we're completely on the doing side. So I just keep bringing people back to being. Bring them back to being and, and bringing them back to the moment. As you said, everyone has a teaching. And like that is a, that is a really beautiful piece of wisdom for people to take on board. It's like, what is my teaching going to be? You know, the... I have, you know, my parents are both still alive, you know, but when my grandparents passed away, I, I don't have a heck of a lot of good teachings that I can remember from them. And then, you know, the teaching from, you know, my, 
my grandfather was, you know, he was definitely a pretty serious misogynist. He was a very cold, closed off man. He's a surgeon. Um, and yeah. yeah, you know, I don't have a lot of, he wasn't terribly nice to my wife when he was alive, all those kind of things. And my grandmother, she passed away. My lesson from her was like, she was very bitter right till the end about her and my grandfather. And, you know, rightly so she had a lot to be angry about, but it's like, how long do you want to carry that for? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's an, I, I appreciate the reflection on your mother's passing and, and the, the wisdom and teaching she brought you to like, that's a, it's a really deep story. Well, and I think in a way your grandfather, you know, and your grandmother, they, that, that is their teaching for you. Cause one day, I mean, you know, as much as we don't like to think about this, your children will be speaking about you. They will be oh, saying yeah. something about their dad. So you've already got the teaching that, you know, I mean, I think it's just a, I was very fortunate. I, you know, my father is a very loving man who was, um, he loved his family life, which is rare. Uh, there are a lot of men I just look at and I'm like, I don't understand why you're having a family. Like you don't like children. You don't like your family life. You don't even like being home. <laughs> you don't like being home. My dad was not like that. So I, I, I think, you know, um, there's so many wonderful men out there these days, like a lot of my friends and like you, like they're just, they're different fathers. Like they're completely, it's a completely different universe, you know? Um, I think that's part of that paradigm shift you're talking about. Yeah. I think that's the karma of, of my generation or maybe not my generation, but it's the karma of our era is to try to fix part of that. And you know what, as a man, I mean, uh, you know, uh, we have to talk about gender and all this stuff, but you know, the truth is uh, just like my teacher, the soul is genderless. Like there there'll come a time where we'll have evolved enough that we will we will cease to have to say this but as a man i i'm tired of having to wear that non-feeling non-emotional i i don't want to wear that mask it's like if you want to wear it good but it doesn't feel good it's not healing i don't like it no and i you know i woke up from that a few years ago and that was my you know my spiritual awakening was just realizing that that's exactly what i was perpetuating and it is, it's a terrible thing to walk around with that mask, to try to be someone that you're not, yeah. but it requires mindfulness, awareness, whatever, to actually figure out that you're wearing a mask. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of masks. You're continually taking them off, but that's why I, you know, I encourage people like, you, you, you have to make meaning of this mystery. You can make it in many, many different ways, but find something bigger to make meaning out of this. And there's never been a better time. Like we have access to incredible teachings, you know, um, the most ordinary of people can access the, the greatest teachers of the 20th and 21st century and beyond. Right. So there's really no excuse. Not right, to pick except up the odd book, or you know, I'm like, too busy. I have too I'm much too work. <laughs> I'm too busy. Yeah, it's my favorite excuse. Yeah, I'm too busy. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's terrible. Wow, so busy. I'm so sorry for you. I'm gonna go oh. eat some ice cream now while you're yeah. being too busy. How do you? So you get people thinking about the future, about legacy. How do you balance that with trying to keep them mindful, which is focused on their exact way of being right in that moment? 
Well, you know, that, that is the, the secret, I think, to happiness and contentment is, is you know, finding the integration between, um, you have to do something in this material world. It's a doing world, right? Nothing gets done unless somebody does something from whether you're, you know, somebody had to do something for you to deliver them, be delivered as a baby. So what we're trying to do is find the exquisite balance in the two, right? And mostly when people are having trouble, it's because somehow the equation has gotten very heavy on one side or the other. Like all being is no, is, is not an improvement either. And each person has to decide for themselves what their life means and what they think life is about. Um, it's, you know, they're big questions. Some people choose never to answer them. So they're not the kind of people that would work with me. Um, so that, that's a difficult question to answer because it's, um, you're sensing and responding. It's, it's a continual kind of evolutionary movement forward. And there are times in your life where you're probably going to work a lot harder right? If you're starting a career or you're a younger person. And, and so you see your life as kind of phases. And generally, if you're an aware person and you're connected, you, you start to see, oh, this phase of my life is, is changing. Um, so you're continually making adjustments, adjusting your sales. But underneath it all, you, you have to have a you have to have a, a, a mission statement of some kind. You have to have a manifesto. You, you have to believe in something. I don't care what it is. God, karma, you're something. Otherwise, you're just going to be kind of blown around by circumstances, you know? Because um, circumstances are coming, right? Yes. As the Buddha said, everyone is going to get sick. Everyone is going to get old if they're lucky enough. And everyone is going to pass away. And you're not going to escape it. So you've got this magical moment in time. What do you want to do with it? And I'm just continually reminding people, yeah, like go out and do a bunch of stuff like, you know, build buildings, do all those things, but, but keep a portion of it inside, keep a portion of it for something bigger than you. And for that reverence, you know, whether that's mindfulness or your spiritual practices, whatever that means to you, but something beyond just the workaday world, you know? So I, that's one of the things I do is remind people. Um, not sure if that answered the question. So you're like the, <laughs> a really compassionate version of the Grim Reaper, <laughs> reminding them that death is at the doorstep. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the Grim Reaper, it's such a Western, I mean, I don't know what the origins of it, but in the Eastern traditions, they don't, they see, they don't see it that way. They don't, they see mindfulness and this remembrance process is a gift. Interesting. Right. You see this cup, it's beautiful. I love to drink from it. It was a gift, you know, but when I know the cup is already broken, like it was sitting on a counter and somebody knocked it over, then it's even more special because I know this cup is already broken. Like all, you know, things, it's eventually one day not going to be this cup. So knowing that, the drinking of it now is even more special because I know I won't be with it one day. So I see it as a very positive practice, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I've used that, you know, one of the, one of the things that um, I've picked up from my teachings from 
David Data is this saying that, you know, death is only six feet away. So how would you be in this moment, you know, knowing that death is only six feet away? And primarily it's in relational practice, but I actually believe there's application in all, um, in all relating or all being to that statement. Not that, you know, it's like, do you want to start anarchy and go crazy because death is six feet away? But how would you want to be in this world if knowing that? Yeah, that's a very nice way of looking at it. And you, you don't have to go very far to see the truth in it, right? No, no. I mean, it, I think, and it's one of the things that's, you know, kind of kept me grounded in the last, the last year. But I mean, the, I think what, what you're saying hits home with certainly my own spiritual journey as well, focusing on the being overdoing and the immense satisfaction I've gotten out of that, despite making less money and, you know, not, um, not having the career that I thought I was going to have it's, it's been hugely transformative and the manifesto piece too. That is so important. And I think the fact that you're able to help people create that, it gives them that they're, you know, guiding principles for how they need to be in the world. If they want to live out the life that, that they've designed. Uh, I talked to my friend, Mike Mascari on this podcast recently as well about purpose. He talks about the purpose manifesto. It's like, don't make it a statement. It's not going to be a single sentence. It's like, it's a manifesto for how you want to be in this world. If you want to live on purpose and you never actually achieve it, <laughs> by the way, which I think is also important. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, in, uh, in, uh, my new year's message to my clients, I talked about this idea of depth and the idea of wabi-sabi and wabi-sabi has three principles. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing is perfect. Nothing is ever finished. So we might call it imperfect beauty. Isn't that the nature of the world? It's imperfect beauty, but nonetheless, like we can add to the beauty and we can be materially success. Like there's no, it doesn't have to be one or the other, but we, we are living in a time where we have to start asking ourselves much bigger, more beautiful questions which is what, what kind of cultures do we want to live in? What, do, what, do we, what, what is our legacy? What will we leave for the people we love? You have children. You're going to leave them with a teaching. When you're gone, they're going to be able to say, you know, I know this is what my dad would have believed in. How do I know that? Because he taught it to me over my life. So it, it's clear to me. My teacher's teachings are very clear to me. Whenever I'm doing something... I know whether my teacher would approve. <laughs> so I feel the exact same way. Yeah, you know, <laughs> they're almost watching over your shoulder. You're like, oh, this isn't the thing that this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's complete clarity. And so um, everybody's life is different, but you know, you're kidding around if you think wabi-sabi isn't true, you know? So it's time for us to stop pretending and to realize that you are here for a very tiny, fragile, beautiful, mysterious moment. And if you want to fuck around and think it's all about like money and stuff, I say fair enough, like go try that on. But if you want to delve deeper into the, the richness and the beauty and the depth of life and realize that it is very fragile, then that requires a completely different set of skills, a different teaching. Yeah. And so everybody gets the teacher they want. 
<laughs> that is that's that's wisdom right there everyone gets the teacher they want it's that's so true now i know in my work i come across people that have achieved you know wealth that i find extraordinary that and i look at them going why are you coming to find why are you coming to work with me um you must have the same thing now i mean you're you're working with people on a, a you know on mindfulness and helping them be who they want to be how often are you coming across people that have achieved you know massive success from material standards but are just perhaps spiritually bankrupt um well uh you know it, you know like many things money's just a magnifier it's it's a completely neutral uh, energy it doesn't make anything better it doesn't make anything worse it just magnifies whatever the person is so what what i think is interesting about great wealth um is that uh from what i've observed is um it tends to do two things. It tends to um, wake people up because they've kind of explored all the illusions, <laughs> right? Like once you realize that your new Tesla isn't going to make you happy because you've got 10 of them, like you, you've, you've, you've gone that, like you've gone the full, full meal deal, right? So um, the other thing it tends to do, so it can wake people up, in which case they become, they're amazing clients. Because they're, they're actually interested in using their resources for awakening purposes. They actually want to give their money meaning. And there's a second bunch, and they are the illusion chasers, right? So they double down on the illusion. We're all kind of doing that in a way, right? So yeah. it's like, why? I have 100 million. Why am I not happier? Oh, I know why. Because it's 200 million. That's what I need. And that's happening in all our lives, no matter what it is, whether it's one car, I need another, whether it's I need a new partner, whether it's, it's you know, my tea's not organic enough. I need to, oh, people get really carried away. So your experiences are either going to do two things. They're going to wake you up and enlighten you, or they're going to put you to sleep and make you chase more illusions. So all circumstances are neutral. You, 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 and you, you see this with great teachers. Their lives are their teachings. It doesn't matter what they're going through. They are a teaching for their disciples, for their students. And you see that in the lives of all kinds of great people. Everybody's met somebody like that. My mother died that way. She was a great example. She showed the dignity of, of, of how to die with dignity and grace and, and humor. It was a teaching. And how was she able to teach it? Because she lived that life. That's how she lived. So she taught it in death, even. And, um, you know, had a big impact on me because we're all going to be there one day. We don't know how, but we're all going to be there. And it's like, you, you wonder, will I be a that graceful? As maybe my body is racked with pain or... And so, you know, again, each person gets to make those choices. So... Uh, you know, my advice is always to clients is try and choose well, try and choose something that is going to serve life and you're part of life, you know? Um, yeah. I think that's some really, that's a really important piece of wisdom to leave um, this audience with. It's like that reminder of, are you, 
choosing to support life in your in your work and in your way of being. Um, I think so many of us walk around, I know I've been guilty of this, just kind of doing damage little bits at a time, whether it's relational damage, you know, physically damaging the planet or otherwise, and not even being aware of it. And I think you're, what you're talking about is trying to bring, trying to help someone become a master of their own awareness so that they're able to make the choices that will lead to more life and less damage. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think the coming of the new year gives us a chance to, um, it's symbolic, but it's important symbolism. You know, like if, if in a secular culture, we tend to strip out the meaning and what we're left with is just sort of a husk. We're, we're just left with a sort of meaningless kind of mirage. So if you can add a little more meaning, a little more ritual into your life, which I think is what coaching does, you know, at the beginning of this year, you can ask yourself a couple of simple questions. You know, honestly, where do I need to be supported in my life? Everybody needs it, especially men. They're just afraid to ask. It. So these would be two questions I would leave people with. Like, where do you honestly need support in your life? Go get it. And don't be afraid. You can't, you can't just get it from your immediate circle. Like, go get it from someone like you or a, a coach or a mentor or somebody outside. And the second question is, where do I need to be a support? That's serving life. Like where do, where, where do you need to support something, someone, somewhere? You know, I don't care whether it's volunteering or mentoring or some, somebody needs your support. And, you know, if you keep it simple and keep asking yourself these beautiful questions, then they, they carry you. They carry you along. And all of a sudden you get to this new place in your own consciousness and it starts to feel good. You know, it's, it's, it's real. It's a real thing. Mic drop on that one. Say no more. Those two questions I think are really powerful to leave this audience with heading into 2019 or anytime you listen to this podcast. So I'd like to say thank you for sharing your wisdom and your time with me today. I've certainly learned a heck of a lot. Those questions are deep and powerful and your insights on mindfulness, leadership, culture, and the world of um, men in the workplace are extremely valuable. So thank you, thank you, thank you, David. Yeah, it was a delight and a pleasure and an honor to be uh, hanging out today. Okay, that is a wrap for the Men at Work podcast, episode number three with David Gomes. That was a great cast full of wisdom and insight. If you want more of this, tune in again next week, hit subscribe, or go ahead and download some of the past episodes. 